0: Hothouse. House. Apart from that, did you feel it went well? I think so. Although Mrs. Winterton took the chance to rub my face in her membership in the Academy. And a journalist asked me about some gossip in a Newport paper, which some people seem to think is about Larry and Mrs. Blaine. What did you say? What could I say? That he's working for her as her architect? Well, that's true. It's spreading, George. It'll be all over New York before too long. You'll control it. Is that all I'm good for? Running around with a blanket to put out the fires? Trying to make sure Larry stays out of trouble, making sure Gladys meets the right people. I cover all your backs, but who's covering mine? I hope I am. That's what I mean to do. (laughs) For me, no one living is more important than you. I know. What do you propose to do about Larry? I'm going to talk to Mrs. Blaine. what will you say? Only the truth. It's usually for the best.
1: Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline.
2: And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode four of season two of The Gilded Age, His Grace the Duke. It was written by Lord Julian Fellows and Deborah Campmeyer, who directed episode two of the season, is back to direct this episode.
1: Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us on Facebook in the Gilded Age fan group, parentheses, HBO series.
2: We are at the halfway point of the season. It feels like it has gone too fast.
1: It's very speedy, but a lot of things have happened. So I'm glad it's not, it's nothing like we're just like limping across this season. I mean, things are happening at breakneck speed
2: very fast and there's a lot of things going on. I've been reading from people talking about how uh, I think I I feel like this season is split with people who feel like there's too much going on now and some people who are just very happy with the amount of things are going on. The one thing I'm not hearing anyone really complain about is the pacing. I think everyone feels like it is moving at a nice clip without feeling maybe too rushed but also not bogging down I guess with the amount of storylines that they have going they really can't be bogged down
1: right i mean we pretty much just like visit with each person and like move them ahead quite a bit and then we like jump to the next person there's lots going on
2: yeah here's here's a little thought that occurred to me as i was putting together my notes for here in the very beginning of episode one when we meet Reverend Forte, who, by the way, the show has changed his name. Really? So, so he was when when it was announced that Robert Sean Leonard was going to join the show, and all the Presbyterian about it announced his character was going to be Reverend Matthew Forte, okay. and and it's also that way on IMDb, which obviously that makes sense because they would have probably taken it from the official casting notice that was sent around the same time that they announced Laura Bonanti coming on as Miss Susan Blaine, all of that in this episode. So should, Ada refers to him as Luke Forte. I, I'm pretty sure. And the, the, I'm pretty sure she says Luke. And the subtitles back me up that she says Luke when she accepts his uh, engagement towards the end of the episode. She says, Ooh. yes, she says, yes, Mr. Luke Forte. <laughs> unless, unless, unless I'm hearing it wrong. And as is the subtitles. So I guess maybe they're just doing like a whole like gospels thing with Matthew and Luke.
1: That's funny. We'll have to listen and see if that continues which one it continues with.
2: And so while I went back thinking about it. Had they where did I get his name was Matthew and I went back and I looked at all the press materials and that's definitely probably where I got it from and and IMDB also says Matthew Forte but then I was trying to think have they actually said his first name and I can't remember an instance where they have they always refer to him as the Reverend or, or the Reverend Forte or Mr. Forte or Reverend Mr. Forte they never say his first name I can't think of an instance where they've actually said his first name even Ada who has accepted his engagement I think this is the first episode when she said. Is Luke. I, I think it's the first time she's actually said his first name. If you guys are out there, have have an instance where you can point to, please let me know, because I feel like I'm going insane. Uh, I, I feel like I'm just taking this wild tour down the Gospels. But anyway, Mr. Matthew, Luke, Forte, whatever, whatever the reverend's name is, we're just going to keep calling him Reverend. So... I want to start down in Alabama. I want to start with Peggy and T. Thomas Fortune. Did we ever mention that the T in T. Thomas Fortune stands for Timothy? I can't remember if we discussed that last year or not. I was reminded of it when I was putting my notes together this week.
1: I'm not sure if we did. We might have, but but no, I don't think so. I've, I've taken to
2: calling him Thomas in my head because T sounds... not substantial enough to refer to him as T and Peggy traveled to Alabama doesn't sound right. I also don't want to say T.T., which is actually how I have it in my notes, because Mm -hmm. T. Thomas, T.T., that sounds also not right. So I think I'm going to stick with Thomas or Mr. Fortune, but I think I'm going to stick with Thomas. I don't know. I don't know how you're referring to him in your head. But his his name is Timothy, but clearly he didn't like it. He didn't go by it. He went by T instead of Timothy.
1: I wonder if it has to do with his slave days.
2: Could be. I mean, Fortune obviously feels like in the line with Washington and Lincoln and... You know the, the same as like Booker T. Washington, right? The the T. I looked up what the T stands for, and I can't I can't pull it off the top of my head. It, it's a it's it's a fun name to say, but not one that naturally rolls off the tongue. But Washington feels like when he was freed, it was a name that uh, that they picked, which I think was a common practice back then.
1: We excited to get to meet Booker T. and get a chance to hear more about what he's doing in Tuskegee.
2: I was. I thought he was fantastic. And it was it was gnawing at me. I was I was really kind of entranced every time he opened his mouth. Like I was really taken. Every time he spoke, I I stopped and I really paid attention to him. And there was something so familiar about him. So when I looked up and I was putting my notes together, I looked up who's playing him, the actor playing him. His name is Michael Brower. His father is the legend, the icon, the inimitable Andre Brower. Uh, known most recently to many people as captain holt but the guy from brooklyn 99 but he has a resume that goes on forever in drama in drama tv and comedies in movies when once you know that you can't you kind of can't unsee how much he looks like his father also how he speaks and delivers his lines like his father
1: that's very cool i always like when we got like a little real life little nugget
2: yeah, look at him, Look, especially like I go back to the dinner scene, the dinner table scene when he's just being very stone faced and trying not to lose his cool over uh, Thomas. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, yeah, let's get to the storyline because uh, I'm curious what you thought of it and how they're approaching it. I feel like they took the argument or the conversation that Peggy and Thomas were having in the Office of the Globe last week and they really expanded it. They put it between Thomas mostly between Thomas and Booker and it made it more contentious but i don't know how much more further down the line they got in pushing the two sides agenda or or really or really swaying one side or the other i think neither side walks away from that dinner conversation convinced or or their mind changed and i think really it just comes off as thomas being a really bad dinner guest but I, I'm, I'm curious what your overall thing was i'm curious if you thought it was weird that we didn't see any of their journey down to alabama i feel like there was a lot of build up with that especially with dorothy's warnings about crossing the mason dixon line and that we pick up with them literally at the train station in Al- in uh, tuskegee
1: my guess is without that extra episodes at the end, I feel like they probably, even if they filmed it, they probably had to edit that stuff. Like, like, like let's just get them there and get them get them going. I appreciated that Peggy pretty much came up with a little bit of a solution for the argument between T. Thomas and Booker because she comes up with the idea of just talking to the students without Booker around. And by doing that, they should be able to get more of an honest assessment of what's going on and like, Is it meeting people's needs? Is it not? Because at the end of the day, T. Thomas can want lots of stuff for lots of people. It really does matter that when they interview these students, if they feel like I'm being fulfilled, I'm feeling really good about my education, I think that should speak louder than T. Thomas's criticism.
2: Let's listen to the clip from the dinner and then talk about their interview with David Sturt, because he's he's the young man who teaches Peggy how to milk the cow. Their interaction with him is most impactful in light of the dinner conversation that comes the night before. So let's take a listen to that.
3: I applaud what you're doing, but can't you teach them to fight? They may gain a degree here, but in the white world, these proud students must learn to creep and crawl before they're allowed to exist. Our lives aren't so different. Things may be worse in the South, but even in New York, we enter through the back door. We're not welcome in the white stores or restaurants or anywhere else. I've been asked to make the characters in my stories white in order to be published. Maybe, but you can still earn a living as a writer. What does a colored dairy farmer trained at Tuskegee do when the white man won't pay a fair rate? Why not sell to a colored man? Because that man is probably just a sharecropper and can't afford it. Until we demand our rights as full citizens, we won't get anywhere. Of course I understand your anger, Mr. Fortune. Do you think I don't feel it? But it doesn't work down here. To build Tuskegee into what it is now, I have had to make peace with the white folk. The white man terrorized colored folks in these parts, and no one does anything. I'm not making deals with the white people who terrorize us. How can you tell the difference? (laughs) You were a slave, and so was I. How do you make peace with people who bought and sold us? Who branded us like cattle, whipped us on Saturday, then sat in church on Sunday without a morsel of shame. Some may keep silent, Mr. Fortune, because they tried your way and they got killed for their trouble. I don't mean to scare you, Miss Scott. You only tell them the truth. But what if you ever stop playing their game? If you stop being calm and keeping the peace? We are opening the largest building in Tuskegee. It will hold offices, a kitchen, living space for students and faculty. You don't get that about picking fights.
4: I think that the Tuskegee School is a
3: political argument in itself. Can't you see that you both want the same things? It's only your methods that differ. I just know I'm unwilling to make nice with people who lynch at will
2: and then he goes on to compliment fanny's dinner and everyone is just left so awkward at the table i i feel like that last bit was him just trying to get the last word in it was not no one needed no one at that table needed to be said even peggy who didn't live through being a slave herself didn't need the point made about people lynching at will. i think he had made his argument well enough already
1: I agree. And I think that T. Thomas on the whole, like when we're talking about like when Peggy goes and knocks on his door and he comes in, he like opens the door shirtless. That was very odd. I mean, I don't really care who's on the other side of that door. You're staying in someone else's house and you're traveling with an employee. Who could have been on the other side of that door that that would have been appropriate? Like, why wouldn't I mean, why wouldn't you just say, hold on one second and put your clothes on? So T. Thomas, he's he's not all about the manners all the time here.
2: I agree. I agree. And, you know, I think that was the most... Hanky panky esque thing that happened. So this was one of our conversations: Were they going to play this straight? Were they going to fumble them together? Were they going to you know have them bump in or have some kind of romantic interlude? And they really did stay away from it. I think the only real nods to anything really were this scene where you're right. He opens the door without his shirt on, and and it's Peggy who's made to feel embarrassed. Right? She she peeks and then she sees him without a shirt, and she like backs away from the door and like goes to her like her her hand to her face kind of thing. Like oh.
1: Wouldn't any of us feel that way, though, in all honesty? Like, I mean, if you're traveling with your boss somewhere and and you come down the hall and you knock on the door, there is zero percent chance I think that person's coming with just pants on. Like I would be completely thrown by that. So I just thought that was an. It, to me. I wondered if it was a little bit of like an upper hand move because he, it, he knew it would like knock her back on her heels because it's not that is not proper etiquette. But it's not even proper etiquette now. Like if you're at someone's Thanksgiving house right now and you happen to be listening to this or maybe you're getting ready for Christmas and you're listening to this. If you're staying at someone else's house and someone knocks on the door, don't don't open the door topless. That's that's going to be weird for everybody. Y'all Weird.
2: I can't even imagine my boss opening his door topless. <laughs> That's
1: what I'm saying. Like it was just a weird move, and it wouldn't matter who it was. It could have been, you know, a staff person. It could have been a student. It could have been Booker or Fanny, any single person. It would have been embarrassing for. So right, let's yeah. knock it off,
2: right? I mean, there's a two and three chance that it was going to be a woman he's not married to at the on the other side of that door.
1: I think even Booker would have been like, whoa, sorry, I didn't mean to, like, startle you. Like, just bad manners.
2: Let's talk about the argument itself, though. I, I, I understand where T. Thomas is coming from. And the anger that is just so unbridled, but he has the luxury of also being able to bathe in that anger, which I think he was missing. Kim and I think him and Booker were speaking at cross purposes to each other, such that T. Thomas couldn't couldn't see Booker's side of it. He was saying. Don't you don't you think I know? Don't you think I feel that same anger you do? But I live here down among the white people. I have to make nice with them. So that when I'm at the train station, that Mr. Thompson tips his hat to me and says good job and maybe considers helping and supporting with donations instead of sending the lynch mob or sending the men, you know, or in- just
1: making it more difficult, generally speaking. Like it doesn't have to be that extreme. How hard do you think
2: it would be to burn- Burn down one of these structures if they were so incensed.
1: That's one of my big worries. I told you in the last episode, I'm very nervous that there's going to be any type of witnessing anything. We know, like Ku Klux Klan stuff, nervousness there, all that kind of stuff is. Check me on dates. That's like accurate. Oh no, right? yeah,
2: no, the, the Klan, the Klan is actually just gaining in power still at this point in the South. They're starting to take hold in legislatures all across the South, and
1: so we talked about their argument a lot in the last episode, and we really did explain the urgency between T. Thomas having experienced a slave life and and really, really, really having this feeling that he must get these other people up and out as quickly as possible versus Booker saying, you know, incremental change is just as good. Peggy is having the same argument. Incremental change is great. And we really made the point that even if it seems like it's a big change, the reality is, is that 90 percent of the changes that we all see that happen in the world, there were a lot of people whose hands were that who touched it incrementally. And it just became apparent to us once it was like a large change. But Peggy is right. I mean, I really think that majority of change, generally speaking, is is always done small, especially sort of these, what I would consider like sociological changes. Like, it's not something that just happens overnight. You know, it's something that like we, we talk a lot about generationally, how different we are generationally, not Year to year, per se, or month to month. But in these, like, larger things, we can see the differences really clearly. So I, I think that I think that T. Thomas should have come in here a little more open to the conversation, a lot more questions than, like, criticisms. I, I think that that was a strange way to start the conversation.
2: I feel like he wanted to vent his anger at at the white people who held him and his family as slaves on booker as if booker was complicit in it by staying here in alabama and building something among the white people
1: or working with them i mean when he says you know all that part it's like yeesh
2: when we're at the train station and the conversation is very cordial between booker and, and mr thompson and he, you know hear great things about your dormitory you should be congratulated he says he gives him a hat tip you know, peggy but then T Thomas look at looked dumbfounded at Booker and said, Have things changed so much, you know, here between between our people and the white people. And Booker says he uses the phrase incremental changes with the whites. So he's acknowledging change is incremental because that is how change is. And and T. Thomas almost see, doesn't want to see it because again, I think he wants to he has the luxury to bathe in his anger because because he doesn't live in Alabama in a post Civil War South. So he lives in the North in New York, which Peggy points out is is not great. It's it's more progressive than maybe the South, but she still has to enter through the back doors. She still has to make her characters white in order to get them published. Yet, T. Thomas gets to be the editor of a newspaper. He gets to write w- with his flaming pen whatever he wants and vent his anger. That's a luxury that Booker doesn't have. Booker is in the trenches with all of the young men and young women and him and Fanny who didn't get out of the South after the Civil War, but yet stay and have to make lives for themselves and maybe make lives for them that aren't so dependent on white people employing them or or even if they are, but bringing skills to bear. It's not just about the normal school and training for teachers. I think Fanny bringing up the dressmaking division, that they are making uniforms, that they are selling that is actually generating money for the school, but also teaching a higher paying skill that is marketable anywhere. My grandmother was an immigrant off the boat and supported her entire family with, with dressmaking and tailoring for years in the garment district of Manhattan. It's a skilled job in a time when not everyone not everyone's going to be a newspaper editor, but I think the interview with David Cert and Fanny talking about the dressmaking showed to T. Thomas, whether or not he's willing to see it, that not everyone here is just being taught how to be a farmer or be, be a milkman. They're building buildings. They're learning how construction goes. They're learning how to till soil and plant crops. Crops and harvest them. They're doing all of the work. They're literally out doing the work every single day in a bunch of different fields. That's invaluable. And people today could use uh, educations like that.
1: I agree. I think that there's quite a bit, though, that T. Thomas has to kind of just figure out internally because he has gone through a huge traumatic life up until this point. And so everything that he's talking about, and, you know, he was pretty graphic, you know, talking about whipping people on on Saturday and going to church on Sunday, that type of thing. I understand that everything is so incredibly raw for him. Because of that, he cannot fathom working with any of the white people that that had anything to do with anything. But I think just generally speaking, any white people, the the problem larger scale than that is is in order to be successful, it will be very difficult to, to just keep to people of color as your business partners when they're still trying to come up and out. So it's like one of those things where like the people who can make your business successful, you you really do need to be successful with all different races, you know, so that you can be successful. That's the people who have some money currently. Hopefully very soon people of color will have some money and they will be able to buy your goods and they will be able to do more. But right now it, it would be advantageous to tap into the current markets that are already being successful and making money.
2: Here's one thing I I thought was interesting, and I think we're not done here in Alabama. I feel like we're going to have at least another episode of Peggy and T. Thomas there. We've seen only the really good parts of what's happening there. And we've only seen so far, we've only seen one interaction with a white person, and it went very well, and it was very cordial, and, and I dare say even respectful and and, and admirable of, of his comments towards what Booker T. Washington has accomplished so far with the Tuskegee School. Remember, in 1883, the school's been open for two years. Fanny and Tom and, and Booker, by the way, are basically newlyweds. They They had known each other since they were both at the Hampton Institute in Virginia, where they both... A normal school where they both learned how to be educators, um, but they had only gotten married formally right before the second year of classes began at Tuskegee. So I think at this time period they're only married like a year to like eighteen months or so. So interesting, like they're you know, but but they clearly have a good relationship. You know, I I want Penny to start teaching a cooking class. I already teach enough classes at the school. They're you know, just kind of like a fun banter, very comfortable with each other, but also kind of newlyweds. We've only seen good things so far. I feel like. I feel like we have to see some of the threats come to bear that Dorothy was worried about, that T. Thomas was worried about, about that Peggy coming there, that Marion warned Peggy about coming down to the south. It would feel, not that I want anything bad to happen, but I feel like... It would be a disservice to the time period if we're left with... Things were pretty great in Alabama in 1883, man. There were no, we're, the work was done. Like, woo, you know? I'm putting
1: my money... I've, I said this in the last episode, but I really feel this is true. There's going to be some sort of incident that brings to light really still that, that, that the, everything is not cool in the South. And, and Peggy needs to see it. It's going to reinforce things that T. Thomas has said. Something's got to happen. I'm predicting that for at least the next episode... I think it's got to come in the next episode because I don't know how long really in showtime we can stay in Alabama. So I think something something else is going to happen. Some sort of reality check is going to happen. And all of this talk is really great, but we have to put it on the backdrop of real historical stuff right now.
2: Right. I mean, historically, we know the Tuskegee School is a success. We know that Booker T. Washington is going to be the president for another 1883 is like another to like 1915 I think is when he steps down or he passes away so he, he the, he's going to be there for a while so he is going to remain undeterred and obviously there are going to be good times and bad times but I think for sake of storytelling of putting these two people of color in this area at this time period some shit has to hit the fan to tell a complete story that doesn't whitewash the entire event plus I think you need to give some credence to teeth Thomas's anger,
1: and Dorothy's, and Arthur's, and everybody who's warned Peggy.
2: I want people to go back and listen to that clip that I played, and listen to Booker's responses, though, because he's not dismissing or apologizing for or making excuses for. He's being pragmatic. He is trying to help him, himself, and his wife, and his students, and his people in the middle of the trench, literally in the trenches. And that requires a pragmatic, pragmatic approach. You can't, be throwing punches and swinging and and verbally assaulting everyone you have to be a, a diplomat and he's doing that but listen there's steel in his voice there's grit there are there there are teeth grinding as he has to answer and keep his cool because he's not all he's not allowed Booker T. Washington is not allowed to lose his cool ever which something T. Thomas is allowed to do and so I don't want people to walk away from this and 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 see T. Thomas is only the only one with the right you know fire in his belly on this issue. Like Peggy said, you both want the same aims. You may just be approaching it differently, but I I don't want anyone walking away from this thinking that Booker T was deaf to T. Thomas's anger and his reasons for it. And I do hope that T. Thomas listens. And and even if he doesn't listen to Booker or isn't sold on his pitch, that he listens to David Sert say, it's great. We're learning here every single day. I'm doing something new and I'm learning skills. I'd also point out T. Thomas needles Peggy into learning into milking the cow, which he does wonderfully. He doesn't do it himself, though. I don't see him, you know, getting on the stool and pulling at the uh, pulling at the teats to to uh, to milk the cow. He just kind of laughs at her about it a little bit.
1: Well, but you know why? Would you? I have. No, 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 no. He's been a slave.
2: Oh, 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 oh! oh I'm yes. not
1: sitting down and milking any cow without full. I, pay. I tried once. It was
2: very <laughs> unsuccessful. The cow and I did not have a good bond.
1: I just think it's it's a principle thing. There's no way he's sitting down and doing labor.
2: There is a there's a there's a bit there, though, and this is just this is now playing, you know, amateur body language detective. There's a there's a bit in when he's watching her do it and and she's smiling and she's really happy and proud of herself at doing it. There's there's a look there. There's the look. Maybe it's just admiration. There's appreciation or admiration from him to her. And he gives a similar look. During the dinner, when she says, when Fanny says to her, oh, the girls are going to be awed at you when they get a look at you, T. Thomas asks her Odd why, odd how or why. And Fanny responds that the girls at their school can never, ever even imagine themselves having a job or doing what Peggy does and gets to do. And Peggy demures and she says, I, I blush at the idea that anyone wants to be like me. Look at T. Thomas, because the camera cuts back to him pointedly. There's a look there. There is a look of either admiration or he's noting her humility. There, There's something there.
1: I think there's something that's attractive about youth and hope. She is so positive and optimistic, and really just wanting change. That most of the time, when people are around people like that, it's kind of contagious, and and you can often smile and think like, "Man, I I I wish I had just a little bit of that 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 excitement for the for the world." Still, you know, I wish I hadn't had so many things kind of stamp that out in me. So that's what I see in him. I see a lot of just sort of like smiling, like, "Oh man, like I I love that." she still has hope i love that there's still there's still like good things in the world including a peggy
2: he says to her go for it miss scott Mm -hmm. and it struck me if that's another maybe possible anachronism were people saying in 1883 go for it just do
1: it Probably not just do it, but you know what? I'm trusting the dialogue coaches and whatnot to be like scouring all of this stuff and all the research to have been done that these are all current Phrases within this time period. I don't think they're going to accidentally do it.
2: After all the effort I spent last week tracking down all of the different things that didn't sound right to me.
1: And they were all right. <laughs> they were all
2: right. And all were well within the, the time uh, the time period and, and had been around for, you know, even much earlier than that. So I'm also going to trust it, but it was just one of those things that kind of struck me as it was almost similarly to when Bertha early in the episode is going on about people having her back because she's got everyone else's back and blankets putting out the fire. I don't know when any of those phrases, I don't know if people were saying in the 1800s, you know, who's got my back? That feels like a very modern thing, but you have to assume I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. I'm a believer. I'm a. I am a believer that 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 uh, that is no longer going to do the research on it unless it's a phrase that I know myself coined. I am uh, no longer going to. Uh I definitely have
1: a lot of respect for everything that T Thomas and Peggy saw and did. I think that Booker T and Fanny and everything that they're doing, everything that I'm seeing is like very positive. We're all we're moving forward and we're really showing society trying to move forward, which is nice because we had that in season one with things like Edison it's nice that we're getting it in a different form, but it's still the same theme. Like, check it out. This is how society's moving forward. This is the choices they're making. These are the challenges they're encountering. Love it. I think that it, it's a really nice through line.
2: Let's let's move on to Marion Brooke. Mm. what's your impression at the mother tea again we're let's let's put on our amateur body language uh hats yeah. here her her awkwardness and having to reintroduce herself as one of the mother's teachers because the mother is convinced that she is francis's actual mother but more even more importantly is all of the we're a wonderful small family we're a small family talk we're there the there's
1: whole a thing woof i mean don't a, you think that was like a lot
2: there's a part where Francis grabs for one elbow and Dashiell grabs for others. And she makes a face like someone just farted under her nose, but then turns it into a smile. Like it's a, it's a, it's a weird complex thing. And so I, I really don't know what she thinks. I don't know if she is being wooed by this, this double assault of cute daughter and dashing Dashiell, or is it too much for her? And she's, she's just not into the whole thing.
1: Just this is just like a gut instinct thing. I feel like it's because Dashiell is not actually wooing Marion, he's backing her into becoming a mother and wife. Very different things. Dashiell is not exactly trying to make Marion fall in love with him, not exactly. It's not about their relationship, it's about them becoming a family or and a
3: mother.
1: The, and the thing is, that's a well, family. That's what Francis says. Right, right. I'm sorry. I'm,
2: she, right. But so, she, he's backing her into being a mother first, wife second, it feels
1: like. Perhaps. But I, but I think that even how angry Marion gets, like when she's having to explain it, and she, it's not just like she's embarrassed to have to explain that she's not the mom. She gets, upset like angry a little bit like she gets a little harsh tone on a little edge where she's like i'm not her mom like cut it out there's parts to that that i was like whoa i felt a little bit less like Marion had any real desire to be doing this taking advantage of her seems way too strong i'm not trying to say that but i am saying uh i think a bunch of different times she felt like she was being pulled by the bridle and she was like digging her heels in, like, what the heck is happening next? She's not willingly going forward. And Dashiell and by by extension, Frances are really incredibly pushy with all of this. I mean, when she says, I'm gonna meet my aunt in the park and also No one was respecting anything she was saying. She was being, like, literally manhandled and just, like, pushed into doing this. I don't think that's the right tact to take with Marion. I think that she's an independent enough woman. She's got enough going on. She's got a good head on her shoulders. I really think that Daschle owes her a frank conversation about their actual relationship and, like, what it is he's trying to have with her because that's not happened at all. He's just talked to Agnes, and then he's been pushing her from from like kind of the sideway into a position, none of which feels like I'm so in love with Marion and Marion is so in love with me. None of that is happening here. This feels very convenient for Daschle.
2: Other than the I still owe you a treat, there's been no wooing, really, other other than... Being a little knight in white shining armor with with uh, Mr. Morgan.
1: The to be oaf. fair, though, that was all you know. Means to an end. I mean, he he had to be like buddy enough with her for her to like say go to the play and for them to like sit and talk more, but like i'm like struggling because it was just a little bit at the beginning so it it just feels like a like a little carrot (laughs) that he gave her where she thought this could be something else was happening here there was some flirtation and some banter and then just got shoved right into where a little family talk to me he did not approach this well it was awkward to begin with that she already knew francis before she knew daschle like that already put them in a weird spot
2: I think an interesting wrinkle that's introduced in this episode and something that Dashiell potentially has to worry about as a competition for his affections is the introduction of Jane Adams via the headmistress of the school that Marion is teaching watercolors at. She approaches her after the tea. She stops her and says that the school, in conjunction with Jane Adams, is going to begin uh, teaching charity classes and they'd like Marion to become one of their teachers and not just Teaching watercolor, but teaching basic skills, reading, writing, arithmetic—that's significant. That is her moving into becoming a teacher, not just a not just a art an art teacher who comes once a week to teach watercolors. And Jane Adams is not a insignificant figure in this world. Jane Adams, she really hasn't come into her own yet. She's, I think, she's just in her early twenties in eighteen eighty three. But she's going to become one of the leading social workers of the next 40 years she's going to create Hull House which is one of the most famous settlement houses in the settlement house movement of mixing incomes and in living situations as to lift the more poverty stricken incomes up by spreading some of the wealth around she's going to be the co-founder of the ACLU i think in the early 20s uh, jane adams is a is a, is an she's an early suffragette she's going to be part of that movement These are Jane Addams is going to be someone that Marion Brooke is very much going to look up to. And in the same way that they were all taken by Clara Barton in season one, I hope we get to meet at least a young Jane Addams this season, now that she's been introduced here at the at the midpoint episode because, game changer, game changer for Marion and her life plans if that turns into a thing.
1: Well, suddenly she has a way to support herself and, and be a professional without having to rely on getting married. And that... I, I is not 100%. I mean, there's certainly, you know, still societal things and everything about being single and the school mom and all that stuff, but you're right that she's growing into herself, and I think that's where a lot of this pushback was happening. I think it was a lot of, like, you know, maybe last year's Marion. Could be, you know, just scooped up by a Mr. Rakes and and she would just be like, oh, this is so exciting. I think her eyes are wide open this time. And I think Dashiell's really pushing her in a way that feels like he's not even that into her. He just thinks she's nice enough and good enough to be a mom to Francis.
2: I'm, I'm glad you brought up Mr. Rakes because I started talking about him actually at the very top of our discussion and then I got completely sidetracked we were told in the first episode that he was going to be marrying Sissy Bingham next week on mm-hmm. Easter Sunday and we haven't heard about this wedding and I feel like that's some vent that at least in passing someone's going to mention we were either at or going to the Rakes Bingham affair it's a high society wedding after all If we haven't seen the wedding, if the wedding hasn't happened off screen, are we really saying that these first four episodes have only taken place within a week to a week and a half of Easter Sunday? Because that's wild.
1: (laughs) But the actor who plays Mr. Riggs is not coming back this season. So we're not going to see that. We will hear maybe conversation. I think that that's fair. Right. But but that's what I'm saying. We haven't even heard. Yeah, but Who? I mean, what? is he inviting Marion's family? I mean, no. So, I mean, who would come well, to this? Well,
2: the Binghams, this? I got the impression, the Binghams are a high society family, so you would think Aurora Fane or Mrs. Astor. But but more importantly... Mrs. Astor, maybe. But more importantly, the Reverend, you would think, would have mentioned again. It's just weird that he mentioned that at the beginning and then we haven't heard it about it again. And we've seen the Reverend a bunch in the first four episodes.
1: I think we're just on the the, the bullet train at this point. And so to go back to a one-line comment, you know, from the beginning, when we know that that storyline's not coming back, it would feel like, okay, you know, like whatever they told us about Mr. Rakes, it'd be like, well, cool, that's some closure. But I don't really know that it would, I wouldn't add anything to this conversation.
2: I, I agree with you. The timeline is wonky, though. I remember, I remember I brought up the Oscar Wilde play doesn't yeah, actually go until like August. August. I, I looked up when peonies bloom and it's right around when Easter Sunday would be and then into April and May. So if he's giving her peonies, fresh peonies, like, like we're still in the springtime and the newspaper that George has the political cartoon from Pittsburgh in it is dated Saturday, March 24th, the day before the season premiere which was Sunday, March 25th, 1883. So yes, I guess maybe it takes a couple of days for a paper to get from Pittsburgh down to New York's offices. But I think we're really, I really do think we're within like a week to two weeks of only of the season starting, which seems like a lot of stuff has happened for only seven to 14 days having moved.
1: It does seem very, very condensed if that's the case, for sure. But we'll have to just pay attention to this timeline. If you guys are listening and thinking about, yeah, like where is this timeline? If you guys pick up little nuggets definitely Definitely shout out to us over on X or on Instagram or over on Facebook at Pod Clubhouse. And let us know, like, are you picking up other little, like, timeline things? And what do you think about this?
2: A little fun fact about Jane Addams. We were told last week... Well, when bertha asks george into looking into when the duke of buckingham buckingham is coming to america she mentions that he's coming in on the rms servia while the duke of buckingham is a fictional character created for the show the rms servia was in fact a very real ship and jane adams is coming to new york on the RMS Servia in August of eighteen eighty three in like the real world, like that historically did happen. Henry James and Jane Adams both who th- though they didn't know each other, both sailed on the RMS Servia to New York in eighteen 18- August of eighteen eighty three. So we may very well meet Jane Adams by the end of this episode. She is actually coming to America as it turns out. Uh let's talk about Ada and the Rev. Uh-
1: Dude I was floored I was floored floored i could not believe it when he slid off that pew and actually proposed and then they had the audacity to make out at the choir rehearsal what that was nuts
2: He looked like he was having a little bit of a stroke when he first asked her about like going to the box, and then he starts wiping his face. He's like, "I can't wait to, I can't wait to the, to, to after Aida, Aida, I've got to ask you now." And he gets on his knee, and I mean, I I don't know how many people listening have have been in church ever or recently and tried to genuflect uh, at the pew. It is a tight squeeze if you're any kind of sized man to get down onto one knee to propose to someone. I can't even imagine how to. I I would. be like please come out to the aisle please come out to the aisle i'll have to do something stand there you can lean up against it that's fine i got to get down on my knee i need some i need some leg room here and he proposed this to her
1: can you believe it were you shocked no because i
2: increasingly am super suspect of the reverend
1: i am suspect of him now because this went too fast and it was like too like okay watercolors okay come to the opera with me okay will you marry me yes it was like
2: and again maybe only within a two-week period because I think my timeline is right based on the things we're seeing here. So within
1: two weeks. Yeah, this is it's fast. But it's also just even in the conversation, it was crazy fast. I mean, he was asking for another date and then asking for, for marriage. I want to point out like,
2: words are so interesting and, and how people reveal themselves through their words i think is really interesting when he is when the rain comes and they ditch mary and they decide not to wait for her because they assume that she's not going to come to the park in the rain so they drive off in the carriage that's when he makes the play to come to get her to come to the church i think believe i think he says thursday uh, to uh, and then tell agnes that she he needs her help with with uh, church charity work, plus there's a choral choir that he thinks that she'd enjoy, like a choir practice. And he says to her, "I just can't wait to Sunday to see you again," because she earlier had said, "Well, I'll, I'll see you on Sunday," and I can't wait. So then he comes up with this plan because he can't wait to Sunday. He says. In the pew, he invites her to the opera. He's got he's got uh parishioners, the Duncans, I believe it was. He's got their tickets to their box at the academy to watch Aida, which is funny because Aida goes to, goes on to be the most performed opera at the Met. I think it's been performed it's it was just performed last season, even uh at the Met in like, you know, twenty twenty two. It's performed it's been performed like over eleven hundred times at the Met since eighteen eighty six, I think was the first time the met performed aida so it's funny that they're going to see aida at the academy because it's become a staple of the met given the opera wars but i digress i digress um and he says to her when he starts wiping his face he's like well i, I can't wait to the end of the opera i was gonna wait to at the end of the opera to ask you this and then he proposes to her why can't he wait that's too very significant of i can't wait so i'm going to ask you this thing now
1: can i just point out a way weirder part sure
2: beyond the stroking and like right sh- wiping the sweat off of his face.
1: He's a reverend and he made a suggestion about five different lies she could tell. What? Since when do you go to someone at church and he's wanting to invite you to something and he suggests all these lies. Now to me and it wasn't that she would enjoy The choir. It had nothing to do with enjoying the choir. It was that evening song would be going on so that they could sit in the pews. I have never met a cleric who suggests you lie. So uh, automatically I was like, what is going on? That weirded me out. I, I was like, this is, I've never seen. Some sort of conspiring like this, unless we've already established that this person in the church is definitely corrupt and all that stuff, but we haven't with this guy, so it was like, what is this dude doing? and then additionally, after that part, when you when you were mentioning just now like the timeline the like I can't wait until that to me also said like what what are you talking about? I, again, I feel like if I have learned anything at church, it's like patience. Love, right? Like we, like we, we don't, we Isn't don't be love loud. Love is kind.
2: Love is we, love is patient. Isn't that yes, like <laughs> <the yes>. Ephesians? <laughs> and it's
1: not like a clanging gong. And also, I had to read this one at one of my cousin's weddings, his like timeline of needing to rush that makes me be like, Are you hard up for money? Did you gamble? Did you do something? What do you need that somebody is coming to get you? That you are actually really honing in on ada as like not only a money source but also like somebody who would be like open to the idea of having these lies and having this stuff going on because a lot of ladies in society would be like get the heck out of here what are you like what are you telling me to lie to my family and all this stuff like get out of here
2: Which, granted, he I mean, he's a quick enough study, which you would expect a reverend to be Uh, reverends or what reverends are a class of people that are going to be good, good and quick studies of people. He has clearly picked up that Agnes's permission or subterfuge to Agnes has to be achieved in order to see Ada. So he's not even trying where, where at least Dashiell is writing to A. Agnes and saying, please help promote my cause with. With Marion, the Reverend is actively going around Agnes. Remember, at the at the Adolf Menzel watercolors exhibit, he was asking if Agnes liked him and it was important to him. Now he's actively helping her. Just, to, just how? Who knows how much long? How much later is actively without even Ada saying anything? Coming up with lies she can supply to get out of the house. It's very troubling. About a week and a half ago, I spun for you off the top of my head a very detailed, sorted past for the reverend that I was proffering in our discussion off mic about if it's not a good thing, then here is a here is a bad reason why the Reverend is here and acting the way he is. I feel like I should give a quick synopsis of that now, because I feel like it's increasingly looking like it may come to bear or some version of it. I think we have to go back and listen to the story of he's never left Boston. This is a man later in life until his mother passed away. Well, I'm thinking maybe he the reason he's left Boston, that he loves so much and come to New York, the place most unlike Boston, even though it's also kind of a lot like Boston is because he had to get out of Boston. I think his quick perusal of Ada as a mark. I feel like that conversation, I feel like Easter Sunday was the reverend scouting who his mark would be.
1: He, he already knew them. like he, he said, you're Mrs. Van Ryan, you're Mrs. Brooks. You're, like he already knew them. So he had already scouted them.
2: And Ada is the easy mark of there. Let's all let's not forget. and I actually I, I, I actually had forgotten about this until I was thinking about this more. And then the back of my brain started to tickle, and I went looking. You remember Mr. Eckert from last season? A guy from Ada's past who came came yes, trouncing yes. back into it, to, yes. and it was clearly for money. And Agnes interceded. She yes. she was included in enough because Ada ran Mr. Eckert through her, and yep. so and 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 Agnes ran him out of town for people that for people that don't remember, go back and you know look at the Mr. Eckert storyline with Ada. This feels very similar. Ada is sweet. Ada is simple. Ada has never had happiness or anything to her own or love of her own. An easy mark for someone who is going to make a sincere play for her with access to money. I think Reverend Forte, Luke or Matthew, and maybe he has changed his name. Maybe his name was Matthew in Boston, and now it is Luke, and he goes by there. Nice. He's Maybe he's got another passport that says Mark or John. He's hitting all of the Gospels. Who knows? I think he owes money. The Irish mob is, is in, is working, and is existing In the 1800s, the late 1800s in Boston, I think he owes money probably for some kind of gambling debt that he literally ran away from Boston, transferred to New York, looking for an older widow or spinster type person like Ada, and he found his mark exactly.
1: I agree. I think that that's where we're at. It feels like gambling, short of time, suggested lying. You are sus. I have a lot of questions about you. And now I hope Agnes gets involved and asks a lot of the right questions.
2: I feel like this is the difference between this and Mr. Eckhart, though. Mm -hmm. Agnes is eating dinner all alone. And how sad were you Mm -hmm. when you saw that long date Dolly shot rolling down the table of her eating by herself?
1: It was sad. I know. You know what? A big change from this season and last season is a lot more people were were cool with Agnes's like sharp tone and her biting wit and everything. This season, I'm hearing a lot more Agnes is mean. Agnes isn't being fair. She's cruel. Now, that was set up for us by Mary. And she like literally put those words in all of our mouths. I mean, I still think Agnes has a very important role in all of this to keep everything on the the up and up, if you will. And seeing her there all by herself, we did have Bannister at her at her elbow there. And I, I was really like, oh, man, this is one of those times where I'm like, just, just, just be like, how about you sit down and we chit chat? But never. I know she's never going to do it. But I don't think Agnes is mean. I think as time goes on. Her life was probably exceptionally quiet before Marion came in on the scene. I mean, we hear that all the time. We hear that they did not entertain. They don't do luncheons. They're not about parties. So if you think about what the last like 18 months or so have been for Agnes to have Marion and Peggy and Oscars doing different things and now Ada's doing all this stuff. Her life is like been like a shaken beehive, you know, and it's like I, I it's no wonder that she's agitated
2: I want to go back to Agnes because I feel like that scene with Agnes eating dinner alone really was an example of the karma coming around to get you that she she literally has driven everyone out of that house. But given my now very, very active worry for Ada, we need Agnes not to be alienating people so that she has a chance to intercede. See, she, we were lucky with Mr. Eckhart that she involved herself, that she knew enough of the details involved. She and knew plot,
1: of him. Yeah. And she
2: knew of him to, to get involved and make a stand. She's being iced out and Marion actively helping Ada for a good romantic cause the two of them working together for Agnes. And again, Agnes is older now. Every Let's go back to the very opening scene of the season premiere. You know, we should have taken a carriage to church. We're getting too old to walk. We're doing all this, you know, those foreshadowing that hasn't gone away. The, the chirpiness and people being shorter with her is, is just Agnes wearing on people after time. But she, She remains a sentinel devoted to protecting the family and the family's name. So will she have an opportunity? Here's the problem. She goes off on diatribes like she did in this clip that we're about to listen to right now.
4: I have business to attend to at the church.
0: Presumably this is the Reverend Mr. Forte again.
4: He wants to discuss the missionary charities. He's working all day, so he asked me to come in later. There's to be a choir practice. Mm -hmm.
0: And what will you do about dinner?
4: I'm sure he'll see to it
0: that I don't go hungry. (sighs) Oh. Oh. Marion thinks you are engaged in a full-blown flirtation. What?
4: You mean with the Reverend Mr. Forte? Why, are there others? Of course not I never said that, Aunt Agnes I
0: think you did
4: Marion likes to embroider things, to tease me, to tease us both Because
0: it would seem a poor return after all these years If you were to desert
4: me now Agnes, what has got into you? So, Mr. Forte is nothing? He is an extremely nice man and I like him very much That is all I feel for him and I am quite sure it is all he feels for me
3: if it were more
4: if if and were pots and pans there'd be no need for tinkers i'm serious i refuse to be serious about this subject <laughs> oh. oh. bannister
0: remove the flowers and the bee that inhabits them
2: we gotta play we gotta play this again because this is gonna be an all-time quote for any show ever
4: if if sanans were pots and pans there'd be no need for tinkers i'm
2: I'm definitely going to incorporate that into my work and in my yeah. everyday work. When someone disagrees with me on something, I'm going to be like, well, listen, if it's an ends for pots and pans, there'd be no need for tinkers.
1: I think you will stop every conversation if you say that. And everyone will be like, what the hell's up with Mike?
2: And, and then I will say, <laughs> I said what I said. And I think Thank I'm also, you. I think I'm a tinker in that sentence anyway. So I yeah, have a vested funny. interest in there being ifs and ands.
1: Perhaps. Does the B represent our friend... Reverend Forte and she says get rid of get rid of the flowers as well as the bee.
2: I like that. I like that. I mean, I think I think it was played for laughs, but I like the metaphor of that. And and the fact that he is the one, and Agnes doesn't know this, though maybe she suspects because of the poor lying that Marion does. And, yeah. and the pointed like everybody eye. Everybody did
1: some crummy lying there.
2: <laughs> yeah. The, the, the and then the, the eye sudden staring. nighttime
1: church visit. Mm-hmm. Agnes knows where those flowers came from. And I really do think, I mean, it's interesting because that's like a nuisance, right? But at the same time, bees can be both ways. Honeybees are wonderful. What a helpful way wonderful thing they are a part of our lives stinging you however is really bad <laughs> so it's like is he a good bee or a bad bee
2: i mean let's not and let's not forget the alarm clock going off waking up <laughs> during when the dishes are being cold i mean what a time for an alarm clock to start to ring
1: it did seem like everybody needs to wake up to the situation.
2: Metaphors, people. Do you see them? Gather <laughs> around the television children and let's look happening. at the metaphors. They're I happening think they're everywhere. happening.
1: I mean, OK, so the whole thing with Agnes, very sad, very, very odd to have to see that exact scene. But we knew it was coming. We definitely knew it was we coming. We called
2: the selfishest single was going to bite her in the ass. And then she comes out with it explicitly. You desert me a fine return, Bye. she says. Good God, a poor I- return a poor return after all these years
1: i understand on one level of course agnes doesn't want anything to happen to the family fortune and all that kind of stuff and she again feels like she's made all the sacrifices by marrying arnold for the family but at the same time you want to think that she would hold out some amount that other people would find love like i mean just can just no one ever have a relationship as far as agnes is concerned because she's really not been cool with anybody as much as she talks a good talk about that would be a good match that's appropriate blah 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 no one anyone's brought has been okay
2: well dashel is though she approves of dashel and uh, as long Dashiell, as maud really has money she approves a of maud one. Beaton.
1: okay okay but she hasn't met these people She's met dashel obviously but maud Beaton. she didn't know who maud Beaton was like she ran off all these other people though i mean mr Riggs. i know she didn't know crap about him but like but she, she ran that whole situation off but correctly you
2: know? though
1: I'm not anti. What I said is, can no one get married? Whether she's right or she's wrong, well, I'm you saying know? No,
2: but her vetting process, I, I. you bring up a good point though, because what if Ada, instead of a reverend or some leech from Ada's past, instead of one of them, what if Mr. Winterton, a man probably actually a little bit older than Ada, you know, let's say Turner, uh, Enid, runs off and leaves Mr. Winterton, I feel like I, perhaps Agnes would be very approving of Ada uh, hitching up with a with a very wealthy Mister Joshua Winterton. So maybe it's maybe we have only seen her behave this way because and as time has proven out so far, uh, she has a, a, an unrelenting an unapologetic discerning palate for what is acceptable, and she will not coddle or soften the blow if she doesn't agree with it. If Ada actually brought home a suitable match of a wealthy family, maybe she would actually be okay with it. I don't think so, but I'm saying devil's advocate.
1: It's wicked, devil's advocate, because you're because you have absolutely not even one example where it's been remotely okay. Don't talk to me about Maud Beaton because she has not met and nothing's happened. They went to a dinner, like I mean, nothing's happened there. So, I mean, when we start talking about proposals, when we start talking about rings, when we start talking about like things moving forward, okay, you know, like that's for real. But like, and Dashel. Dude, all that does is keep money in the family. That is just like incest to the hilt. I mean, we know it. And I understand they're not they're not cousins by blood, but I mean it's way to her benefit. Her benefit to have Dashiell be the one to keep the money in the family very different to me i just don't see agnes necessarily being happy with anybody and that just feels like wow you're just making your family wither on the vine then
2: let's circle back to that alarm clock thing what are we doing with jack here's a fun thing by the way jack they also changed jack's name on the show i i, I was i was down a whole rabbit hole with with people today If you go to HBO's website for the show, like if you were going to watch On Demand, and you click through, they haven't updated it at all for season two. So it's still all of the season one information, like they've got Mr. Rake's information and Mrs. Chamberlain. Jack is listed as Jack Treacher. Treacher, T-R, Reacher with a T in front of it, Treacher. Treacher. But he's Jack Trotter, though, on the show. If you go to uh, the IMDb or whatever, they refer to him as Jack Trotter. Why? Why? Well, you did some digging. And- I'm not
1: going to go into the research on it because I, we're not there yet. I don't know when this alarm clock thing is going to come to fruition. But I did do some research. There is some Trotter history having to do with clocks. So I'm going to keep watching because nothing exactly lined up in my, in my research yet. But I'm just kind of waiting to see what he does. I mean, it's definitely like this little side storyline where he seems to be really trying to make some inroads here. So we'll see what happens. You could see where viewers
2: would be very puzzled why we're getting so much storyline for this without really, I mean, I'm kind of loving it because again, I like, I want to know what the servants are doing when everyone's upstairs. So I kind of dig knowing that Jack is just with his tools and learning about escapements and and, and taking apart clocks like a real MacGyver down in in the basement when, when, Mrs. Aster is trying to to get people out of their boxes, or Ada is lying to Agnes upstairs. The the smile that Jack gives, the camera cuts to him when when she finishes saying, if ifs and ands were pots and pans, uh, there'd be no need for tinkers. They cut to Jack, and he smiles like the most rueful smile. It's adorable. I have no problem with the storyline for Jack, but I understand. I think there are a lot of people out there that are very puzzled and or getting antsy, like... We have so many, quote unquote, main characters that we should be focusing on. Why are we giving all this storyline to Jack and his clocks? Despite myself, I'm super invested and interested in where this whole weird clock thing is going, especially with the metaphor of the alarm clock of all kinds of things that he could be messing with. I also want to talk about Miss Bauer. We never give her any props. She is the most supportive human being ever.
1: I know she's super nice to Peggy. She's really loving of Ada. Like she is the one you want in your corner. She's very sweet.
2: I mean, in this episode alone, she says, uh, she's always rooting for a game. And she's like, she deserves to have some happiness because Jack says, yes. I think it's Jack that says she really likes that rector and she deserves it. She's got that wonderful, delightful accent. But Mrs. Armstrong is, is like, well, we're going to have to wear helmets or something with the alarm clock talk. And it's, it's Mrs. Bauer who runs over and shuts up Mrs. Armstrong and says, he's a clockmaker. You know, he's, he's an industrious man. She's just this ball. If you're having a bad day you want a mrs bauer around she will find something good about you or something good you did or some potential you have and she will raise you up
1: very mrs garrett right you guys remember from facts of life love it love it you take the good you take the bad can we go over the servants over in the Russell household?
2: Please.
1: We've got lots going on over there. Watson. I was very excited
2: to know Watson listens to our podcast and agreed with us.
1: I feel like he does, right? I mean, this entire scene where he goes and talks to Mr. McNeil. We, we talked about this so much in our last podcast about how we just could not walk away unless our own kiddo was the one who told us. I feel really good that he stuck to his guns and was just like, we can't do this. You know, like, I I can't do this. If Mr. McNeil had kids himself, I feel like maybe he would feel differently. So this is one of those situations where Watson's doing the right thing. It's a difficult thing. It is a questionable thing of how this is going to play out. But he's doing the right thing to, to actually speak to his daughter and get it from her first.
2: I think it's interesting that Robert... Basically confirms he's lying because he plays all of the cards that someone lying would play. He gets defensive, says that Watson must be accusing him of lying, because why else wouldn't you believe me when I say, my daughter, that you can't meet with her and confirm what I'm saying is true? And then says, you must not care about her happiness. And then goes one step forward and says, you're not only stubborn, you're insolent when Watson continues to hold the line. These are all the things that someone who has said a lie would say in defense. They get very defensive and they, they go, they go on the attack as they see it, but it only reveals themselves as having something to hide. And I feel like he, he, he does it textbook wise. So I found this very believable, made me very much not like him, but I'm super proud of Watson for sticking to his guns and and the repercussions if he goes without Flora knowing about it and only getting the, the filtered story that Robert is going to tell her about where he went or whatever there's no coming back from that he will he will never be able to redeem his reputation to her ever and how can he live with himself as a father oh let's finish uh chef uh chef Josh and mrs Bruce
1: first what the heck what the heck who saw this coming I did not see this coming
2: I feel like they definitely had interactions in season one, but for this to take place in the Russell's drawing room, what is she doing at the piano and playing at it and sitting at it? And what? What is, is she mad? Has she taken leave of her senses?
1: I cannot believe that someone wouldn't poke their head and be like, What are you doing? <laughs> Tinkling what? the little ivories here. Like, get out of here. But I did not see I saw zero chemistry between Chef Josh and Mrs. Bruce. The all these episodes, all first season. I haven't seen anything. This really came out of the blue for me.
2: I feel I do feel like I would have to go back and see if we ever talked about it, but I feel like we did I feel like there were some glances. No. I no no, I think there
1: were I thought she was like I feel like she's like twenty years older than him she doesn't even seem like I I don't I don't know they seem so different from one each other uh,
2: who doesn't like older people falling in love and finding their person
1: I didn't see this coming. I mean, next we're going to just have like any old two people walk into a room and be like, will you marry me? <laughs> this <laughs> is like, the power of the
2: Russell what? drawing room. Did you see the mooch that uh, George lays on Bertha at the end of the episode?
1: All right, we're going to get over there. Let, are we ready to talk about the... Uh, uh, we have everybody? to finish Oscar
2: so we can finish the Van Ryn house. And then uh, then we're going to head over to the Russells. Molly is continuing to be mysterious. She is, she is heavily involved at the stock banking work of her father such that she's dealing with contracts and stocks and such. That seems very interesting to me that a young woman in this time period would be doing that work, but here we are. And this is something that, that Oscar knows about. So he actually does have value to bring to her beyond his charm and being able to make her laugh. And she seems to appreciate it because in a couple of, a couple of times he voices that he wishes he could help. He would, if he could. And then in the park says to her, I might be able to help you. I am a banker after all. And also at the very beginning of the episode, when the Reverend is making his pitch for them to help Bishop Riley's mission down in Mexico city, which real person, real mission, Really did actually write a letter in December of 1882 to parishioners back in New York, asking them for funds to help build build buildings down in the Mexico City Mission of the Anglican Church in Mexico. It was crazy. I was reading I was reading 1800s documents of the Anglican Church. That's what I was doing earlier today.
1: That seems like overkill. Oscar <laughs> Oscar says
2: that he'll make a donation in Maud's name because she comes in after Marion, I think it's Marion and Oscar joking about how they are willing to change, well, Oscar's willing to change the world from the comfort of Fifth Avenue. Maud comes in and says, oh, that bishop sounds so courageous. I wish I could do something and be, be adventurous like him. And Oscar says that he'd make a donation in her name, which she seems to very much appreciate. So he's doing all of the right things and maybe actually seems to be well-placed to be a match for Maud, but super mysterious that ooh, the father, the father, would you be able to say no to your father, she asks Oscar if he was still alive. Very, very clipped to mysterious and the fact that we think it's Jay Gould based on the bio that Aurora gives Oscar in Newport about Maud. Super mysterious. I'm very curious where they're going to go in the final four episodes, if they're going to tackle it at all. Now, let's get to the Russells
1: i was very relieved that we got some actual agreement here between the two of them it took a long time i felt like it was painful the whole time i didn't really know when she was finally going to give in it was a lot so jumping into the Russells,
2: the tour i mean it really just have to we have to start with the tour right away the idea that the Met is out of cash i don't think that man pulled her aside nearly far enough to say that they're out of money and that's why there's no one working lord no the sales of the boxes at the Met have been slow, so while they all acknowledged, and this was said at the dinner where Christine Nielsen showed up and sang in the Marguerite's Garden, they announced that they're they're willing and ready to run at a loss for the first couple of seasons to ensure that they bring the best singers, that's predicated on them actually selling the boxes at the Met in order to bring in some money. So they're willing to run at a loss, but not so early. They weren't supposed to run out of money this quickly bertha takes it to george and says and he gladly without hesitation offers to get involved and she says that she'll appreciate she'll appreciate anything he can do but that conversation takes a drastic turn though because it comes back around to larry and susan and also turner and and her screwing around with bertha let's take a listen to the covering the backs and putting out fires clip Apart from that, did you feel it went well?
0: I think so. Although Mrs. Winterton took the chance to rub my face in her membership in the academy. And a journalist asked me about some gossip in a Newport paper, which some people seem to think is about Larry and Mrs. Blaine. What did you say? What could I say? That he's working for her, as her architect? Well, that's true. It's spreading, George. It'll be all over New York before too long. You'll control it. Is that all I'm good for? Running around with a blanket to put out the fires? Trying to make sure Larry stays out of trouble. Making sure Gladys meets the right people. I cover all your backs, but who's covering mine? I hope I am. That's what I mean to do. For me, no one living is more important than you. I know. What do you propose to do about Larry? I'm going to talk to Mrs. Blaine.
2: What will you say?
0: Only the truth. It's usually for the best.
2: What a sick burn to leave the room on. She had to. She had to get back at him for his. For me, no one living is more important than you. Line, which is a great line. Talk about put it. You know, stitch it on a pillow or put it up on the whiteboard for memorable quotes. For me, no one living is more important than you. Pretty great line, George. So I like that she kind of digs at him just to let him know he's not out of the doghouse yet. That the truth is the best way forward, George. <laughs> was this predictable that at some point Bertha was just going to have a complete meltdown and and a yes. breakdown for everything she's yes. trying to handle
1: Yes. And P.S., just like this entire thing about, you know, he's making everything so much more stressful. She isn't used to having to deal with the state of her marriage while dealing with her kids and their societal life and the Met and all this stuff going on. When you pile on the relationship portion of it, that, that was breaking her back. I mean, she she needed this part to be done. So did George. He's got a ton going on. I'm really relieved that they finally were okay. I really disliked Bertha's dress. It looked like a weird Martha Washington colonial dress that did not look fancy or fun at all.
2: The only dress I liked that she was wearing in this episode was the silver dress that she wears to the Duke's reception.
1: That one was very pretty. But this weird... Yeah, uh, no. d- here's how I want to describe it. It's like corrugated cardboard that is like the color. That you use for, like, bulletin boards when you make a border. Yuck. I don't like it.
2: All right. So before we get to her taking out Mrs. Blaine, because this episode was her laying out here the, the several fires she has and how is she going to address them? She, she knows she has to deal with Mrs. Blaine. She knows she has to deal with Mrs. Turner or Mrs. Winterton. But first... Let's resolve the Met and its funding. She asks George to get involved. George does get involved. Let's listen to the clip, because then we got to talk about, is George lying?
4: Mrs. Russell, what are you doing here? Oh, did we need your permission? I only meant I wasn't aware you knew
0: the Duke. I hear work on the Metropolitan has been suspended for a while. Well, that's been sorted out. was a slight hitch, nothing more.
4: So it won't upset your plan to open
0: on the same night as the Academy. <laughs> Good. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. I enjoy competition. Is that true? That everything's back on track with the Met? Problem solved. Work will start again in the morning. What? How? I hope you haven't put your own money into it when I promised you wouldn't have to. No. It was just bad accounting. I had Clay look into it and it's been sorted out.
1: That is wonderful. Thank you here's the deal on that all he had to say because she didn't say I don't want you to fix this with our money she didn't say that she was like man I hope you didn't have to put money in this when I said you wouldn't have to it was like that to where all he had to say was something like I love you so much like your cause is my cause And I'm for it. He he didn't have to say, no, I didn't put any money into it. We know he put money into it, you guys. I really do not think this was bad accounting at all, which means this is another lie. And I'm very worried.
2: I agree with you. To the extent that there are mitigating circumstances, this doesn't feel like the same kind of lie or even the level of deceit because she did not say, please don't put money in.
1: Or even in an angry way, like this is my project. Stay out of it. Don't put your money in it. To it, I want the credit for this project. Like she wasn't. She wasn't in any way like like that. He did not. If he is lying, he did not have to lie. And I don't know why he did.
2: Well, so here is the thing. So I, again, the the George justification for this is I didn't want you to feel like the, You you are taking on society with this project. I didn't want you to worry that it in fact was not a success or because I know in the end you will triumph that it's the the timing is just not matching up right now you plan to run at a loss you plan to have no money so you just didn't have money sooner than you thought you did so I'm just floating you along there plus you never said don't put our money in there so it doesn't really matter so I think there's a lot of mitigating arguments that he can sit and hem and haw about why he didn't do it that are persuasive this is isn't a lie. I don't think anyone would say this is a lie on the same level as what happened with Turner, but here's the thing. His ice is so, so very thin. Any lie, any lie feels like he can be the final lie.
1: And I'm sorry, how easy is it to check this lie? One conversation with Clay with the guy. Yeah. <laughs> not with oh, Clay. Uh- with the guy who is raising the money. Clay's his lawyer. Not not the is gonna say whatever George says. But going back to the guy who who is like raising the money, who is friends with with Bertha. All oh, she has to do is go back to her friend and say, Did George write you a check?
2: Well, she doesn't even have to. More likely than not, he's going to say to her, Thank God Mr. Russell came with that donation and got us back on track. And she's going to have to keep face and then go home and be like, The actual dick. What is happening?
1: How about she's a board member? She would see the financials, including who donated. Like, it's just such a crummy lie if it is a lie. Like, yeah. Do you honestly believe? I mean, I just want yes or no was this actually bad accounting or did no george give the money
2: no george just put the money in
1: so then blurg this is so bad george he's being too quick with the lies now now it's just like coming off his lips like it's too easy
2: yeah which makes you think like how has he handled her before mm-hmm. or like we're just, just seeing fact, now right just, We've just you're
1: having to say the word handled it's like oh shit i didn't know george handled bertha at all And now I'm like, oh, he does. Well,
2: I think we would all would have said that Bertha handles him and everyone else. But I think it's it's revealing himself that George, in fact, does do his own uh, amount of handling.
1: Yikes. Yikes.
2: I don't know. You yeah. and I talked about a possible kind of argument to this that maybe there is a wink here on the bad accounting and that maybe Bertha is in on the wink or that maybe he is thinking that she's in on the wink of bad accounting because it just sounds so preposterous and she is an intelligent woman. But I don't see it. I, I think that, I think that is the only kind of argument you can make to this discussion, but it feels too thin and and not real enough based on how she acts in the scene but, you know, I guess it's also possible that in fact it was bad accounting. I mean, we are definitely assuming he's lying here, but maybe he's not. Maybe, maybe the people running the Met are idiots and they need like a high finance person like Mr. Clay and the people that George employs in order to get their books in order. I guess it's possible, but we know they, they, we know that they've sold very little boxes because everyone like Mamie Fish and Aurora Fane and Enid Winterton, they are all saying, well, we're going to come look at your stuff, but we're not actually going to buy. Until we're forced to or Mrs. Haster throws us out or something. So we haven't really seen anyone other than the O'Neils really be actively in on going into the new boxes.
1: Trouble. This is all trouble. I don't feel anything good about this.
2: The news is getting out from Newport all the way back in New York. That's something hanky. Panky thing is going on between Larry, her son and Mrs. Blaine. And, and what do you have a comment about it? And they have great cover to say they're working. She's, he's working for her on her house and it's all fine. And you're just, you're trying to dig up dirt, but inside she's screaming and putting out fires with her blankets. So she goes to see where she summons Mrs. Winter, uh, Mrs. Blaine to her house on the story that she's going to pitch her a box at the Met. But we know that's not why she's really bringing her to the house. She's bringing her there to eviscerate her. Let's listen to this savage clip.
0: Some gossip has reached me that I confess I find disquieting. I thought I was here to talk about the new opera house. That can wait. Did you see the article? About you and Larry? How can you be so sure? It gave no names. Don't think I care what they write about you. But I do not want them to connect you with my son. Larry is working for me. You've had your fun. Isn't it time to end it? What are you talking about? What is it that you want from him? You can't give him an heir. In 20 years, when he is in his prime, you'll be walking with a stick. Even if he feels too guilty to leave, part of him will be waiting for you to die. You must remember what that was like when you were married to your husband. How dare you say such things? I dare because they're true. I'm leaving. Very well. And about the opera? I don't care about the opera. Well, that's good. Because since I wrote, the boxes have all gone. So I came here for nothing. I'm afraid it looks that way.
2: If someone said any of those things to me, just one of them, I think I'd die. And I think I would just cry. The the he's just gonna be even if he stayed with you because he's a good boy out of honor and duty, you know he would just be waiting for you to die.
1: Yeah. <gasps> I clutch no, pearls, ugly. I
2: don't even wear, Caroline.
1: <laughs> no, that's super ugly. I I mean, you know what? Bertha is sharp. She has got this tongue that is ready to go. Honestly, Mrs. Blaine needed some like real truth because she was very much feeling like she could do anything she wanted without consequences. And there was always a lot of like, dude, you really can't. Like, I mean, say what you want, think what you want, but like, it's going to get out there. I just didn't know if it was going to get out there in a way that was like sink the boat at the Russell house. This was to me like a shot across the bow like I think that Bertha ended this Larry and Mrs. Blaine ended this before it caused any gigantic problem but it was definitely a shot across the bow that like every single person in this Russell house better walk the line because anything you do is affecting everyone
2: think you're a hundred percent right that mrs blaine ultimately really overplayed her hand and also really didn't appreciate what the reality of the snoop world is at this point that you can't even in newport you can't get away from the roving eyes and the and the gossip and the talk and so her plan to have a toy and um, use larry like a toy all summer and play and have fun and pay no price for it was never realistic we talked about that there are so many people in the house there's so many eyes. Larry walking in in the middle of the day, the walk of shame, or the carriage of shame home. Like, they were not being discreet at all. And then these two fools laying in bed, talking about how they're in love with each other. And she goes, Susan surprised me with her goddamn sincerity. It wasn't part of the, not part of the original plan. I feel like I'm falling in love with you too. What? What the (laughs) fuck are you talking about? And Larry, you sweet, sweet, dumb, dumb boy. Listen to this clip when she blows him off which she fumbles through and in in her own way was as savage because she was so curt uh, with Larry but he wasn't taking the hint otherwise but listen, listen to how Larry sounds here
4: I think we should call a halt
2: I don't understand
4: we should stop seeing each other no damage has been done nothing that won't be forgotten within a week but if we continue as we were things might get complicated yes They will get complicated, because we're going to be married and live together until we die. Please, Larry, you're making this more difficult than it needs to be. I think it needs to be damn difficult. What prompted it? Tell me! Was this because of my mother? Do you want me to take her on? Because I will. Don't.
2: Because we're going to get married and fall in love and live together until we die, and I will take on my mother!
1: I feel so bad easy for Larry you
2: soiled your pants in getting so excited you need to go change your diaper
1: whether whether or not he was like had been with no other woman before which I don't think that's true this was seemingly his very first like really all in kind of relationship where something was he was feeling it I mean he is feeling attached I feel really bad for him I really hope that, that Larry learns something from it and like kind of uh, takes this wounded heart that he's definitely gonna have and not just be angry at his mom, but, like...
2: He's absolutely going to be all of angry at his mom.
1: Be angry. That's fair. That's fair. Because anyone getting involved in anyone else's relationship, it's fair to initially be angry at them. But I hope that over some time here, he has some understanding that, like, really... Honestly, this was not going to work out. This was silly. This was not going to happen. And I think he will eventually, because because it's very Marion, really. It's very getting caught up. It's very like, oh, we're going to meet and blah, 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 blah. And we're going to live together and love each other forever. It's very like that. So it's very like kind of first real hard love and all that kind of stuff. Marion certainly has a stiffer spine and is much more cautious about what she's up to. I think Larry might have the same realization. I hope he does.
2: Right, we're going to see bad boy Larry now. He's going to have, like, you know, seven weeks sneer. stubble on his seven weeks stubble on his face because he can't actually grow a beard because he's too young. <laughs> he's going to be drinking milk straight out of the carton now.
1: <gasps> Real oh my, bad oh, like boy bottle. stuff. Out of the glass bottle. Oh, my God. <gasps>
2: butter right out of the glass bottle
1: <laughs> right out of the cow tea. he <laughs> may burp
2: or fart and not say excuse me and no. mix company bad he's boy larry era it. this is he's the bad boy larry it. era coming in
1: he's gonna start wearing a leather coat <laughs> yeah
2: he's gonna be wearing a feather and a hat bad boy larry era incoming Boom! Oh, it's happening. Lord. He sounded like such a silly little baby. I, I, when, when you know the handwriting was on the wall when the episode begins with them to embed, and I think they were always basically just either about to have sex or had just had sex every single scene they were in in this, in this, their entire time together. When he says, no one cares. Oh, Larry. You sweet mm. si- child of summer. <laughs> Everyone cares! That's all people do is care! They, they only want to care about other people's business. The naivete. I mean, here's my thing with Larry. You can't be swinging your big dick around in front of your mother and then also act like a little petulant baby who's having his toy taken away. You have to be a man or you have to be a little boy. You can't be both. And by the way, don't speak to your mother that way again. Oh, my God. Not to rehash three episodes ago.
1: She asked too many questions. (laughs)
2: and how did it all work out
1: yeah she got involved she stuck her she stuck her bertha face right into the bertha situation here and totally totally blew up larry's spot i feel for larry i do think that that you know he was just caught up for god's sake we've all we've all had those moments it's okay i don't actually blame him mrs blaine knew better bertha sure knew better larry this is first silliness here
2: Final fire that Bertha had to put out, Mrs winterton now she had to put out winterton fires on two fronts or she attacked she attacked enid we learn her name is or at least the name so everyone's like oh her name's enid now her Ena, we know her name now at least that's the name that she has told the headmaster charleston is her name is enid who himself is living a lie going by mr winterton when we all know he is the headmaster at chilton uh, in stars <laughs> hollow Girls. or in yale <laughs> But it's not in, in Star's Hartford. Hollow, though. In It's in, in Hartford. Hartford. Okay, yes, but I got Chilton Hartford. right, though.
1: You're doing good. You're doing just fine. You just threw out a lot of words. You were like Chilton in Yale and all the No, that I things. thought it
2: was by Yale. That's why. I thought, I thought they were closer together than Chilton was to uh, Star's Hollow.
1: Hartford and New Haven. Hartford. New okay. Oh, lock that away. Anyway, Dakon
2: Dakin, Dakin Matthew. So um so let's do let's let's handle let's handle the who are you really, Mrs. Winterton, first before we deal with the Duke? Mr. Winterton summoned to Mrs. Astor's house. Now, interesting, because we've only heard about Mr. Winterton, really from Watson, as being a very wealthy man. And clearly he's a man of age. But Mrs. Astor is so important in society that even this man of this age is getting in a carriage and going to her house when summoned power mrs astor has real og power she tells him that as politely as mrs astor can they have to take their box away at the academy because mrs winterton upbringing and her journey to journey to becoming mrs winterton is too unlike the other ladies she would be forced to socialize with
1: okay so who squealed who squealed this
2: it had to be it had to be Bertha dropping a dime right, which is interesting that she I would employ. I'm
1: curious.
2: Did she drop the dime herself to Mrs. Astor, or did she use an intermediary like Aurora or Ward McAllister or someone
1: else? Maybe Ward. Ward seems like you're very like because because you could tell that and not be concerned that it would come back to haunt you. Anyone else you told trouble because it could get out into like regular society in a way that could like harm you. But if you told Ward that Ward's going to be cooler about just getting it right to Mrs. Astor.
2: Right. But because the 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 wagons were really circled tightly on this, that really only people inside the Russell household knew. And we know Mm -hmm. that because Oscar was aware of of who Turner was, but didn't know she had become Mrs. Winterton literally until he reached her name tag or her placement tag at her seat before looking up and seeing who she was. So even he didn't know. So it had to be a very tight circle of where it originated from. So I, I think it's Bertha to ward makes sense to Mrs. Astor.
1: Hey, what'd you think about Bertha being so forward as to go in that room and switch around the place cards?
2: Dangerous business, but I loved it. I mean she I loved it. She was seizing her opportunity.
1: And also later, when George is like, "You're wrong, my man. She's in the right spot." I was like, <laughs> "I love that defending the place car switcheroo. I love that."
2: So, still back with Mrs. Astor. Mr. Winterton threatens that he will not forget the insult, and then neither will Mrs. Astor. That feels like an empty hollow. What do you? Is there anything Mr. Winterton could possibly do? Him and his uh, bougie wife uh, nah. do to take down Mrs. Astor? That seems like a hollow threat. Yeah.
1: Nah, yeah, total hollow threat. And and anyway, he said at the end of the whole conversation, he's like, there's nothing really much for me to say once, like, the blade's already already fallen. Like, I mean, he realizes. And P.S., I don't think he gives much of a shit about really being at the opera. So, I mean, he knows his wife's going to be pissed and he's, like, pretty thrown by, like, what's going on here. But I don't think he's actually overly sad about not having to go to the opera. But I really do think that this is going to have to, like, be answered as to, like, what is your story, Winterton?
2: She gave a massaged history, but she gave a an history, a history of of her time with Bertha and how they would know each other as as a companion versus a lady's maid. You think that's enough to stave off Mister Winterton throwing her out on her ass if it all comes out? Has she, has she said enough with enough detail that she can tell him? I told you this, and you understood.
1: Well, it was tricky when she said that because it was very much just sort of like relying on this like doddering old man kind of idea that like, oh, I told you, you're just not remembering. And it's like, huh, okay I mean, to me, I'm sure she said nothing ever about any of this. And it's just now that it's brought up, she's like, oh, my God, it was like eight months ago. I told you the whole thing. We had an afternoon and she's just lying. This is what I think happened. I don't think she said one peep about her history to Winterton.
2: Real talk. Does she look like an Enid to you?
1: Uh, That's a really specific name. It's a really yucky name. (laughs) Uh I don't know. I mean, maybe. She reminds me very much of Mrs. Gulch from Wizard of Oz. So, sure, Enid works.
2: There was an Enid on Wednesday. When I heard the name, I was like, I I was like, that name, that name is ringing up. I've heard the name Enid wildly enough recently. So the Duke of Buckingham, not a real person. But so here is why, why introduce the Duke of Buckingham at this, uh, at this juncture in the show? We haven't really talked about it, but Bertha is largely modeled on, uh, Alva Vanderbilt. Alva Vanderbilt had a daughter, Consuela Vanderbilt. Alva eventually arranges for Consuelo uh, Consuelo sorry to marry the ninth duke of Marlborough in 1895 now they were separated by 1906 they were divorced and got the marriage annulled in 1921 and she was married to some french aristocrats like that same year gladys is the stand-in for for consuelo Insofar as these people are, as, as far as Bertha and Gladys are modeled on anyone, the idea being, and I think the fan speculation is that we're setting up by introducing the Duke of Buckingham, this fictional Duke. There were Dukes of Buckingham. There have been four creations of the Duke of Buckingham going back to the 1400s. The title has been created and then burnt out four times. There was a Duke of Buckingham actually alive at this point, but he was 60 years old and he was the last of his line. It was the, Duke of Buckingham and Chandos, so this guy in this in this show being played by Ben Lamb is not real, but the idea being that maybe he is a stand in for the Duke of Marlborough, and that Gladys will be. Betrothed to him, and she will become what were known as the dollar princesses. Basically, the royalty, the the extended royal family in Europe, running out of money, flocked to New York in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, married rich daughters. And then went back to Europe. So they took money from the states with the royalty and power and prestige that came with the peerage in England. And they merged those families. It's the same setup actually in Downton Abbey, the, the Crawleys. He was a, of a peerage and she was of a dollar princess of the daughter of a wealthy family. And they went to America, married her and came back. And so, so it, the setup is, is well known in the Julian Fellows pantheon. So the idea being that maybe. Gladys, And there's even a hint, I think, when Bertha makes a pitch to the Duke to come stay with them in Newport, she says, I have a son and daughter that aren't much younger than you. They're already laying the groundwork. And I think a lot of the conversation George and Bertha are having about, did we like the Duke? Was he nice? Was all related to, is he suitable for Gladys? I think ultimately that's going to be where the storyline goes.
1: He seems like such an adult, grown man in his own skin and like... Uh, Gladys, I mean, God, uh, she seems more like a daughter to him. I mean, maybe age-wise they're not, but I mean, like stature-wise and the way they carry themselves and the things that they have going on. Oh my goodness, she, she is. Very young for him. Very inexperienced.
2: Just to give you an idea of how poorly the marriage went between Consuelo Vanderbilt and the Duke of Marlborough, the bride needed to be locked in her chambers the night before the wedding so she wouldn't run away and her tears had to be sponged off of her face. That is how poorly... That's she did not want to. Dude. She did not want to marry the old Duke of Marlborough, the ninth Duke of Marlborough.
1: I've been sad about lots of stuff. I don't know if I've ever sponged tears off my face. That seems pretty pretty lot of tears i tell you
2: i agree with bertha he was younger and nicer than i assumed he would be all the more reason to maybe make him a match with gladys maybe not to make him a tyrant so the idea being this is not who you would have picked gladys a man you've never met from across the pond who is significantly older than you but he's nice and he's not unattractive so hey
1: I wonder, you know, a little bit, um, if you remember in Oscar's pitch, one of the things he tries to sell himself on is that he will inherit his mother's home. And so therefore Gladys will live just across the street from them. Your grandkids as well, in theory, right? Uh, It would be very, very different if Gladys married a duke and headed off to Europe. Like that would be a very different scenario for George and Bertha. It would be interesting because I think in a modern day, people might choose to have their family close by.
2: I think George would want his daughter to be close by. I don't I think Bertha would be perfectly fine for her to go. I feel like it would be a reason for them like to a go with feather in her cap. Oh with feather in a cap and now they get to, now they have a castle or a, a, a grand estate that they could go vacation in half the yeah. year if they so choose across the way which again I, you even hear Mrs. Winterton say or Turner say uh to Maud and Oscar that they stayed with the duke in uh, castle Sidmouth uh Sidmouth I believe is what she said which i looked it up i believe the castle uh castle sidsbury which is the closest to the castle that she may be referencing is actually just a, like an an old hill that dates back to like the iron age may turner was even lying about that or that she she only came up like she maybe heard about this castle that turned out was actually just a, a fort like a hill fort ruin <laughs> from a thousand years ago so bertha is putting her best foot forward with the duke and they're they're making they're making jokes about the placement setting and she of course says if this had been at my house and hosting like the placement would have been correct and you would have been very comfortable which we know is true with all the things we went through last last season with the correct place settings between church and banister you <laughs> And then he says, "Well, was that an invitation?" and I found that to be very cheeky for the duke and he has to know she's a married woman and his his hus her husband's in the room somewhere. George is watching them. George is watching them and giving them a little side eye. I I'm, I was curious if you tracked if there was like some flirting happening there that maybe Ger- that George was picking up on which then colors at the end when he says, "Well, I didn't ask you what did you think of the duke? Did you find him likable?" And she's like, "Oh, it's hard not to find a duke like But yes, I actually found him very likable and much younger and nicer. So I'm curious. I'm curious if there's a little like, you know, George, George's uh, George's uh, green monster uh, was getting raised a little bit.
1: I would say one of the best get back at someone that loves you would be to sit across from them and flirt with someone else. No. And have that other man be very into you. It's kind of like a I got options, George. I got options.
2: George should always realize that Bertha has options for sure. <laughs> so at the end, the the Duke does agree to stay with them, and it makes it in every newspaper. I want to talk about newspapers a little bit, because we saw a lot of different newspapers in this episode. So we see the Daily Graphic at the beginning, or the Daily Graphic is when they're doing the opera tour. He's the one who wants to make the sketch, and then he gets really bummed because Bertha eventually walks away from the sketch and he's not quite done with it. But we see the New York Times being read by several of the high society families. The Fanes are reading it. Bertha is reading the times marion is reading the sun which is another paper at that time it's a it's another well-respected newspaper in the city it had it was the first crime beat newspaper they were actually the first new pa- newspaper i think i read that had like a devoted crime reporter and it was also at the time was the newspaper more more pointed towards the working people It would eventually actually go on to be very anti-labor and actually became very conservative in the 1940s, but at this time was actually the paper of, like, the working people who weren't necessarily buying the Times. But then you have, and I love this, Turner learning about the Duke coming to stay. So the Fanes learn about it in the Times, and Mary learns about the Duke coming to stay in Newport with the Russells and the Sun. Turner reads about it in Town Topics, the Journal of Society, which was a real magazine. It was published from eighteen. 1979 to 1937 caroline it was the scandal sheet it it like revolutionized the idea of printing uh, printing blind pieces and gossip about high society that was like its entire deal
1: yeah, but that feels right that like that would be Turner would totally read the tabloids. Everyone is
2: exactly, everyone is reading the newspaper that they should be reading in this scene, but all finding out about the news of the Duke coming all in the same place. A great little tidbit about the town topics and how salacious it could be. They ran a piece about Emily Post's husband having an affair, which led directly to Emily Post divorcing her husband because of town topics. How's that for history? Emily Post, the lady of banners.
1: <laughs> Whoa. Well, you know what? Once, once you're in a tabloid, uh, Emily can't save face after that. She's like, and a done.
2: And I'm out. Anyway, so, <laughs> so let's finish off. So we have learning about the Duke and the Duke is coming to stay with the uh, Russells and not with them as was supposed to be. And you have this hysterical, flipping out and losing her shit, which ends the episode. And it made me laugh so hard, even harder than big baby Larry and his, we're going to be married to the end of time, man, I'll take on my mom. Her screeching that she does at the end of the episode is so dramatic. And there's the end, like the very last word she says, she's actually looking right at the camera. It cracked me up every time. And also just, I love when Turner gets her, which, you know, her come up. And so let's end this discussion with, uh, with turner just losing her her shit as uh headmaster charles charleston headmaster charleston is that right charleston yes yeah charleston as uh, headmaster charleston tries to assuage her that there are other dukes that they can find he is to be the guest
4: of mr and mrs george russell in newport she's giving a dinner in his honor perhaps we'll be invited First, she has me thrown out of the academy, and now this? My dear, please don't upset yourself. I will upset myself. And I'll upset Mrs. George Russell if it's the last thing I do. Enid, there will be other Dukes. I don't want other Dukes! I want this Duke! We found him, and he's mine! But that witch has stolen him from me!
2: To say nothing of the strong, uh, Mrs. Gulch vibes.
1: I was gonna say, as soon as you say the witch, I was like, oh, you can't say that, cause then that just puts that back on you. <laughs> but even but before
2: that, she says, uh, she's like, and I'll get Mrs., I'll get Mrs. Russell too. When, uh-huh. like When she's like, and I'll get the little dog too. But she says, I'll totally. get Mrs. Russell too. She's got the gulch going. She was going full wicked witch of the east. a big episode i mean it was there were just a couple of things they actually storyline wise scaled it back they focused a lot on there's the peggy there was the opera house there was turner there was larry and then ada and ada the reverend so i guess there was a lot going on but it felt like they scaled it back and really devoted time to bringing to at least plateau, if not resolution, to launch the back half of the season. Four down, now four to go. Are you happy with where we're at here at the end of episode four? What do you think or what's your priority for getting resolved in the back half of the season?
1: Gosh, well, I think that George and everything having to do with the strike has definitely got to be the back half of the season. Oh, I didn't even talk
2: about that. Do you want to play that clip? Do you want to yeah, yeah. play? like okay, So this is the clip. So George has to walk into his office. Workers are striking outside. He slams his fist on the ground and we have this.
3: Why must I be the villain in every story? I employ thousands of men. I have lifted whole towns out of poverty. And yet I'm the tyrant
2: who crushes the faces of the poor. I'm told they have a date set for the strike.
0: Pinkerton's men say the same and it'll be soon. We're ready whenever it comes. We have defenses around the mills across the river and we have enough scabs to keep production
2: running. Let me be clear, Mr. Russell, the strikers will do whatever it takes to
0: keep the scabs out. The governor has given me his word. His militia will get the scabs into the mills. We hope. They won't fight against armed men.
3: They will if they're armed themselves.
2: So much like Maud Beaton, I have George and the workers down in the to come, that this was laying groundwork for something to come. And my notes say exactly this. Violence is coming, period, soon period scabs military versus workers period and I, that's what's going to be this is going to escalate henderson is getting them all riled up be ready to fight be ready to die mrs henderson handing him his little tea being like i'm not down with dying i want to be not being a dressmaker anymore and it's going to come to a head and this is laying the groundwork violence is assured now because they, It's like Chekhov's gun. They have laid the way for the military, the the governor being involved, scabs being ready to roll. They already hired the scabs. They are ready to go. The, the workers won't let the scabs through without it getting physical. This is going to explode. We're going to have an explosion in Pittsburgh of violence.
1: I agree with that wholeheartedly Um, additionally I think that there's definitely you know a lot more Miss Turner's sleeve I don't know if she gets to stay Mrs. Winterton I don't know what Headmaster Charleston will do now that he realizes that his wife has not been honest with him and that it's actually having huge social ramifications for him He, he might care more than I give him credit for like I said maybe he doesn't really give a hoot about not having a box at the opera but maybe he does and so that That could be a whole problem. Now we did get that little nug from our fellow downstairs staff member that uh, Mrs. Winterton has, you know, her wiles to work on Mrs. Mr. Winterton. So maybe she'll just rely on that and he'll like fall back in line and forget all about this and not really care and let her do her thing. Who knows?
2: Yeah, I think he definitely cares about not being embarrassed. I think that was what his whole threat, empty or otherwise, to Mrs. Astor, that this is an insult that I won't forget and I w- and you won't forget it either. And also he says, we're going to go, you know, this forces us to go to the Met, to which Mrs. Astor probably to Mr. Winterton's surprise says that would probably be a better fit for who your wife is uh, which is just its own level <laughs> of savage on Mrs. Astor's part uh,
1: Mrs. Astor is wicked on all this stuff yeah, wicked. It's,
2: it's so much fun to see see her go and you know I, I want to draw just draw a bow around all of the Bertha storylines we talked about the three fires that she had to put out ultimately to her targets she didn't go at any of them directly she employed intermediaries for all of them the workers were stopped the money was an issue at the met george she put george on it and he handled it mrs winterton was a problem she put someone on it that put mrs astor on it the duke was a problem so she got the duke to accept his invitation and the papers acted as the intermediary to let the world know. She went to Susan to get to dump Larry, so she didn't have to face Larry directly. It's masterful. It's masterful in how she achieved all of her aims, but only had to minimally get her hands dirty behind the scenes. Not the active face of any of it, which is a play right out of Mrs. Astor's playbook. It was just last week that she said, Agnes, you need to write to all of the Academy members and tell them." If they take a box in the Met, they will forfeit their box in the Academy. I can't say it directly, but you can and say that you have heard or the word out is. The, the, the godfather never went and committed murders himself. He had his foot soldiers go and do it or his sons go and do it or other people go and do his work for them. It's, it's a real masterful stroke for Bertha to be employing this so, so wisely on so many different kinds of things. She knows just the right tool for every situation. And I really admire that about her.
1: I'm just very much looking forward to George actually having to handle this strike situation because right now I just feel like he's kind of like working around them or in some way just expecting to, to squash them but in reality we know he's going to have to work with them in some way so we'll see how, what goes on here. Um, I also think though like looking forward to like the, the second half of this season I mean everything with Ada and, and the Reverend I mean that is so fast and furious. We've got Peggy and T. Thomas what is going on with them? I do do feel like we got some like kind of softer looks at a T Thomas at Peggy, which I'm not exactly calling straight chemistry, but I am saying like there was some like lovingness in his eyes. I would like to say, what do you think what's coming up for the second half? What do you want to see?
2: I think the biggest thing I think I want them to avoid doing is introducing anything new. I think they have tantalized us and, I think they've put stage up with curtains in front of all of these storylines. So Reverend and Ada. All right. Now she's been engaged. So now we have to deal with Agnes finding out about the engagement, whether Agnes is going to take that sitting down or she's going to stand up and insert herself in the process. And really, what is the Reverend's story? I think that's the big curtain reveal for that. George and the strike. George, I think George's journey here is going to be that his money can't actually solve everything no matter because they keep playing even in the coming or like the previously on they focus on the clip of him saying uh where him and henderson are like nose to nose and henderson makes it very you know plain that it's going to be workers versus his capital and george says of which i have a lot so i think it's going to come down to one of those things where money can only do so much and like you said he's going to he's going to actually need to negotiate or give and, and change the industry. And I think that's going to be his challenge is that he is in this clubhouse with the Goulds and the Billy V's and, and, and these people, but his hand is going to be forced and in a way that money. Can only do so much, and so what does George have next? Does he bring Bertha to bear? Does Bertha go in as her as his negotiator? Negotiator? It would be a wise decision, I think. She could charm a snake back into its basket. I think. I mean, she's got a silver tongue as as, as sharp as she can be. I think she's extremely persuasive. I think them working together is also going to be a challenge. I feel like they have shown enough cracks that their challenge is going to be: can they remain solid? Will he continue to handle her slash lie to her? Will that blow up in his face? I think the Maud Beaton and Oscar is going to take uh, is going to really take off. I think we're going to see a lot of them as her story becomes more revealed and we find out this mysterious father, which again has to be Jay Gould, but she refuses to re- acknowledge him by name and so what is her business in his business and how can oscar help that and will that bring them together will will he find his match And really just revealing more about her because she really is an enigma, truly. Marion and Dashiell, will she be scared off from Dashiell because of the lack of wooing and being forced into this mother family role? Will she have an excuse to get away from that with the Jane Addams now being dangled? Remember, Jane Addams is getting on the RMS Servia in August, just a few months away from where we are in the story. So do we come back in episode five with a little bit of a time jump or do we pick up right where we left off? I think we're probably going to pick up right where we left off, but maybe it's it's a mid-season, you know. So anything is possible. We have four hours left. No guarantee that we're getting a season three. There's a lot of different ways this can go.
1: I'm very much looking forward to it. I cannot wait. I'm so happy that we've been getting some more of these podcasts to you guys. You've got lots to listen to. This is Caroline.
2: And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss a new episode when it drops, it'll just pop right into your feed. And when you're at Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts, if you could leave us a five-star review and give us five-star rating on Spotify, Spotify. also has this great new thing where you can ask us questions. You can interact by answering questions about what you thought about the latest episode, or leave questions or comments that you have about the episodes. It's a new feature that Spotify is rolling out. So, leave us a five-star review. We'll read it on the air. It really much helps us promote the show. It helps Apple say that you want to hear more of the show, and so they will promote the show more. And listen, like, uh, like Church says to Mr. Borden, we gotta get our skates on, which means that you want them to do something quickly or hurry up according to the BBC, when he says, we have to get our skates on, Mr. Borden. I laughed. I've never heard that phrase before. There you go.
1: Very funny.
2: Y'all get your skates on and go give us a nice review so we can all do more shows.
1: (laughs) I love it. Thank you guys so much for listening.
2: Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production.